This is the Aurelius Podcast, episode 45, with Komal Fez. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder at Aurelius and your host for the Aurelius Podcast, where we discuss all things UX, research, and product. In this episode, we have Komal Fez, a UX researcher, strategic innovator, and new author. She joined me to share her experience doing some really interesting cross-cultural research work she and a larger team did in understanding women's mobility challenges in countries like Malaysia and Pakistan. Through this conversation, Komal brought up some really interesting findings of her own experience and how research execution changes when you're looking to learn from different cultures and some things we can all consider to be more thoughtful and inclusive in the work that we do, even if it's not such a broad global context. The Aurelius Podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the powerful research repository and insights platform. Aurelius is an all-in-one space for researchers to organize notes, capture insights, analyze data, and share outcomes with your team. We recently announced two of our biggest features yet. Aurelius now offers transcriptions and our automatic report builder. You can add any audio or video recording and have notes created for you automatically. Then, Aurelius automatically creates a report with every key insight and recommendation from your project, which you can then edit, design, and share with anyone right from Aurelius. Check us out at AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Okay, let's get to it. Hey, Kumal. Hi, Zach. How are you? Great. How are you doing? I'm not bad. We're rounding up the end of 2020. So when this comes out, folks, <laughs> hopefully we've turned the corner by then. But, you know, I think we're all at this point kind of hanging on and just as arbitrary as that time and date is, I think we're all ready to be past it. But I'm pretty good. Mm-hmm, all of those mm-hmm. things considered. And I appreciate you jumping on and, and taking the time to chat. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here talking about UX research with you and end of the year. So this is a good news. <laughs> Yeah, at least I certainly hope so. (laughs) You know, there's a couple weeks left and with what we've seen, there's uh, always enough time for something else crazy to happen. But Oh my God, yeah, I'm just clinging to hope. As we do with every episode, I would love if you could maybe just introduce yourself, share a little bit about background in case some folks don't know you or are not familiar with your work. Absolutely. So I'm Komal Fez. I'm a UX researcher and also a strategic innovator. I've been in the field for six, seven years now, and I have master's in strategic foresight and innovation from OCAD University, Toronto. I have communication design bachelor's from National College of Arts, Pakistan. Recently found out a great thing as a milestone that my book as a co-author is out. It's called Contentious Cities. It's published by Routledge and edited by editors from Melbourne University. So yeah, I'm currently working as a UX researcher at Zensurance in Toronto, Canada, loving my field. Have a lot of interest in mobility, travel, insurance, finance. Sounds contradictory, but (laughs) (laughs) um, I love both sides. So yeah, that's me. Yeah. Okay. Part of why I wanted to chat with you is I think that you've done some really interesting work on a couple of those topics Mm -hmm. uh, that you've actually given talks about. And even the book that you mentioned you co-authored, I believe touches on, I haven't read it yet because it just came out, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it'd be really useful to kind of maybe share some of the background there and what led you to those interests in some of that work that you've done. Amazing. Yeah. This is probably my favorite topic and project to talk about. What you're mentioning about the talks and the book itself, it's connected to a project called WeMobile. It was funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council UK. And basically, it brought together researchers from UK, US, Pakistan, Malaysia, 
and we all work together to understand what are the mobility barriers that women are facing in low middle income countries especially Pakistan and Malaysia comparing it to life in the UK we try to understand how it really impacts women's lives and life decisions so it was an incredible project honestly i got to go to different countries do research there work with incredible researchers from these countries andre is a director at Coventry University UK Adila is at University of Malaya Malaysia and you know others are from different spaces as well and basically this project which was around one and a half two years helped and understand how how incredibly important mobility is for women and how underestimated this this huge side is around the world whether it's like developed countries or developing countries it's really neglected not looked upon as a significant area but as we're talking about women rights as we're talking about growth as we're talking about moving forward 2021 this century this is a very 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 important topic so yeah based on the work that we did in that project this book chapter is sort of like a synthesis from there what we mm-hmm. found what we understood what policy makers and decision makers should be looking at and my talk were also revolving around that a particular thing and I'll talk more about the insights and everything as we move forward but just to give you a gist of it this is what it was awesome the kind of where I want to start just because I'm guessing that some people that are listening to this may have the question when you talk about women's mobility can you mm-hmm. put some more definition around what that is and what you were actually studying absolutely and great question cuz I keep forgetting it's my context <laughs> and it might not be the same context what i mean by that is traveling commute even migration and immigration emigration both for women particularly going to work going to places for education leisure changing lives making life choices so everything related to transportation commute and moving from one place to another for women we put it together under the idea of mobility for women and women's mobility got it okay that is definitely helpful context one of my first questions is of all this research you did how did you do the research right cuz for us who are research nerds and mm-hmm. thinking about this cross cultural cross country and not even just the operations but how did you decide what kind of research you were going to do and how you were going to conduct that it was kind of hard to decide that <laughs> cuz as i was saying like women's mobility if, if all of these concepts and like all of this travel commute migration comes in that then where do you start where do you end so our first question in this was okay where do we put that line which box are we going to keep because in ux research and in any research it's kind of important to define that box like so that you know you're not just going crazy with the data and information and everything so we pulled it together and we decided okay going to focus on commute and travel mm-hmm. right we will leave the inter country and across border commute for now we're going to focus on low middle income countries particularly pakistan and malaysia and we're going to even narrow it down in malaysia we focused particularly in kuala lumpur pakistan we focused particularly in lahore as our center and in uk we particularly focused on coventry so defining geographical boundaries for us and defining okay this is commute and day to day traveling it really helped narrow it down so that was the starting point mm-hmm. then of course we figured okay who's going to do what because we were researchers from different parts different backgrounds we have ergonomics experts we have architecture people we have ux researchers design researchers and we decided okay we're going to keep it interdisciplinary and we're going to keep it across these fields because all these fields connect with the idea of transportation and mobility so these kind of things 
gave us a bit of structure. And then in terms of methodology, we kind of limited it to, okay, we're going to keep it mixed methods, but we want to do just one thing for quantitative, which is surveys. Mm -hmm. We're going to do one thing, which is participatory and co-design methods. So we're not going to stray from that. We're going to keep it that way and add a third element of finding journeys, which was actually then, this was something that came around later because we as researchers, we decided to go to these countries. So we added a third layer to it, which was autoethnography. We're still trying to figure it out as a method. And, you know, this is one of the discussions we are figuring out, like, should we write about this method itself? Because this is this is super new as well. But autoethnography was basically us as researchers and also as women and women who have had experience of living in different countries and traveling to different countries. How did we experience mobility in those three countries, Malaysia, Pakistan, and UK? Mm-hmm. So that was a third layer that we added. But yeah, keeping the methods Keeping the location, keeping our definitions helped us, you know, get get a starting point. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because everything that you even mentioned sort of in describing the project, there's so many angles you could have decided to tackle on this. You got to focus somewhere. And Mm -hmm. it's funny, you and I were talking a little bit before we, you know, sort of started recording here about an episode we had with Tom Griever. And one of the things that he actually mentioned in that is a lot of times we kind of run into problems with collaboration and working with stakeholders and stuff because we don't have a clearly defined problem. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's exactly what you had to do. As you said, we need to define the box that we're working in here. Yeah. And then we figure out the right methods to apply to that. I do want to add here, although we defined that box, but it was never that linear. This question kept coming again and again. Even when we had the data, we were like, okay, now what? Which lens do we use? <laughs> which which perspective do we use? Who do we listen to? What takes what? I would say it was a consistent conversation again mm-hmm. and again. And especially in, in teams where there's a lot of different perspective coming in, there can be all these complexities of this particular question, where the box lies, you know, where, where do we put this sort of end or like a temporary line to? So, yeah. Sure. Okay, well, let's dig into the real depth of this. <laughs> what are the things that you learned? You know, what, what did you really take away from this at a high level? You know, main insights that we would see as researchers. Do you want me to talk about it? Because there are two sides to this. Do you want me to talk about it as a UX researcher or in that project about mobility, the insights and takeaways? I'm actually really glad that you asked for that clarification because I <laughs> planned on asking about both. So when I was asking okay. just now, I was, uh, you know, imagine that everybody's listening or the stakeholder and you say, okay, here's what we learned for the project. Yeah. What I do then also want to hear is what do you <laughs> think you've learned from that experience that other researchers should know and kind of learn from? But let's take it as uh, maybe, you know, two parts. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I think, yeah, for our listeners, I think the UX researcher part will be more relevant. And I really love sharing that that part. I think it's a very interesting question because I've reflected on it a couple of times. And every time I come up with a new insight, I'm like, aha, didn't think about this one. <laughs> but one of my biggest takeaways, um, to be honest, will be the experience of working with such different minds and being able to apply the theoretical linear understanding of collaboration to a super, super complex version of it in reality. That's my beef with (laughs) theory sometimes. You can listen to it, you can read it and be like, okay, I know everything. And then you start practicing it and you're like, what the hell? Like, where where is that? How do I take a pause, Mm -hmm. step back and be like, guys, let's start from scratch. This is what the theory said. Let's take it step by step. Never happens that way. So my biggest takeaway in terms of that was I learned how to accept the complexity and let it flow. What I mean by that, they sound great words, yeah. But what I mean by that is that 
I read it in theory that when you're collaborating with people, try to make things more structured, more organized. For example, if you take any participatory method that we use, it's like always like, okay, in a world's cafe, set people in a group, give them, you know, a piece of paper, ask them questions and they'll start talking. Whenever it's in reality, it's like everyone starts talking first and you're like, (laughs) how do I bring them to this one question and how do I stop them? Because that's reality. As humans, we like discussing. We saw the other person. We're not just going to sit there and be like, what's up, buddy? You know, I'm just Mm going to look at you. We're going to start talking. So in this collaboration, I had Dr. Andre, who was a director at Coventry University. I had Dr. Dina, who who is a professor. And both of them are still in the same position. She is from Urbana-Champaign University. She is a senior professor, associate professor. I have my brother, who is an architect from Pakistan. I had Dr. Adila and Dr. Nick from University of Malaya, who were working in design and architecture and urban design. And I had me, who has been in UX research and has design background and has been more on the on the systems thinking side of things and social innovation. So my biggest takeaway in this collaboration complexity was when we all sat down and we started thinking about, okay, how do we do this? How do we analyze this data? I realized there were just so many different perspectives and, you know, who takes a jump at it? Lucky for me, there was no one who wanted to be the dominant voice. They all wanted to step back and be like, okay, no, no, no. Tell me what you think. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you (laughs) observe from this experience. That was a great thing. But whose narrative are we listening to and whose perspective in terms of observations, analysis, synthesis are we talking about? So going through that in reality was something that a big learning point was that theory is one thing and practice is slightly more complex. Another takeaway that I will talk about will be as a UX researcher, talking about methods. Sounds very trivial. Sounds like a 101 about UX research. Of course, you should know all the methods, you know, and you are a UX researcher. You should know which method to use when. But when you actually are doing research in different countries, Mm -hmm. the context is a very different and that defines the methods you use. For example, in Pakistan, I just couldn't rely on being like, okay, I'm just going to, you know, put up a post about like, hey, we're doing a world's cafe and woohoo, come together, talk to us about your mobility issues. (laughs) It had to be a very one-on-one kind of invitation because women are not really inclined to come to these kind of sessions or why would they, you know, go to a, what is a world's cafe to begin with? But on the other hand, in UK, we could, we, we posted about it and we could be like, people knew about it more. Like, yeah, yeah, we want to talk about mobility, of course. I remember that event that transport ministry had like a year ago. So this might be something similar. So it's cool to do that. So you have to think about methods in a very contextual way, which includes social stuff, cultural stuff. And in Malaysia, we decided to have focus groups. But when I went to that focus group as a researcher, a big barrier for me was language. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to talk in Malay. And they looked at me like an outsider, although physically and appearance wise, I'm, I'm a brown person. I could gel in with that. But I was still you know, step back because English was my way of communication. And for a lot of them, it was like, okay, you know what? You don't even know our context. So yeah, all these things about methods and how to deploy them was a was an insight for me and how it's contextual. That's, I can only imagine. I mean, especially the, the language barrier. I mean, how did, what happened there? Mm-hmm. To be very honest, it wasn't like a big, big barrier in our project because lucky for us, we were doing it in a setting with women who are educated or slightly more educated or could communicate in English, at least to a basic level. So we didn't struggle with it a lot. 
But I will mention that when we were conducting some sessions in Pakistan and in Malaysia, there were moments where some expressions and some experiences could only be expressed in a full way using that language. You know, sure. when you want to when you want to actually explain that that extent of it, you want to use your own language and be like, this is how exactly I felt. So, for example, we're talking about in Pakistan, I remember we're talking about mobility issues and this topic of uh, not having bathrooms for women on bus stops and on workplaces was something that really restricted mobility because you're a woman, you are having your periods and then you have to go to your work and you have to wait at the bus stop for one hour. You can't change your pad. What I'm saying sounds like, oh my God, why is she even talking about this? But yeah, that's a very real thing. And you can't really express the frustration you feel. <laughs> so one of one of the participants, she actually started talking in Urdu and she was like, this is just, you know, ridiculous. <laughs> and I can talk about this with you girls, but I can't bring it up in in a public place where men are sitting in the bus stops and they're the managers and they're the ones making the rules. So this kind of language stuff, I found it very, very interesting. Same with Malaysia. There was a woman who was an activist and she was talking in English and everything. But the moment she started talking to our researchers from Malaysia, she started expressing the things she felt about it. She said, it's so politicized. Women are not represented. Even in this day and age, I'm an activist and I have to explain basic stuff. There was this one small moment. I actually, it's not relevant right in this question, but it just came to mind. It's very interesting. There was this one guy in Malaysia. He was a representative from the government and he gave a presentation saying about helmets and safety. And I think just because he was used to it, he said, well, men are not that good with taking care of themselves and safety, but women are are very nice and they drive really slow and us sitting in the crowd we're like oh, how dare he <laughs> so <laughs> when that activist was talking about it later she was trying to be polite in english but when she started talking in malay she was literally expressing that you know what that guy just labeled us as women being slow and being a nuance in the in the transportation thing like when they're driving slow and holding everyone else back and she's like, how dare he? Like, this is the stuff we talk about. This is sexism. I just realized at the moment she couldn't have said it better in English, you know? Yeah. So that's one. I wouldn't label it as a barrier. I would just label it as contextual, again, contextual understanding of things. How language can make so much of a difference in research. I think that that's such a good point that you, that you mentioned there. Because even, you know, you consider that you and I are having a conversation in English. And that's fine. But even in that case where we're speaking a language that each of us uh, understands, there's still what is the proper word subtext, even in the mm -hmm. way that I might use that language, even though I understand it, you understand it. Yeah. And I think that that's something that's useful for us as researchers to remember that even when we're, you know, a lot of us probably work in technology and software. It seems like fairly straightforward stuff as opposed to some of the challenges that you may have found in this cross-cultural study. Even in those situations, I don't think it should be taken for granted to consider that just because we're speaking the same language, that someone might not feel comfortable using their language in the way that they want to or need to, to appropriately express, you know, an answer to your question or, or share their frustrations and things like that. Absolutely. I mean, language defines culture, social structures, 
interactions it's so much more than just communication in a in a verbal format it's so it's like just the tip of the iceberg it has so much deeper stuff for example i look back at uber case study they launched in india they launched in pakistan the way i experienced it in pakistan was so so much different than the way i experienced it in developed countries in canada and us and one part of that is communication you sit in an uber in pakistan and and the driver goes like in the local language he goes like just in a very informal way like what's up like where are you going to go and should i drop you and there is this this scare factor that you're a woman sitting in a stranger's car <laughs> in a country where the crime rate is insane <laughs> versus when i go into an uber in toronto sometimes and i'm treated like hello ma'am and oh, welcome and i have water <laughs> and i have these are directions i'm going to follow and you know these are timelines and i feel like it's so structured all of a sudden and that's just me perceiving this while i'm sure people who are native english speakers might look at it differently and for me too I consider myself not as a great example of this because for me growing up English had always been a part of my education so again there's another layer to this I can't compare to people who don't have that context as much so definitely in research this part and Uber kind of failed in in India and in Pakistan didn't succeed the same way it did in developed countries and you know one of the things could be cultural and social aspects concerning language being what tip of the iceberg um sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. Your comment there actually reminded me of something I kind of wanted to ask you is that through your experience in doing this cross-cultural study on women's mobility and all of the life experience you gained and just and even just practical research experience now you're working in Toronto, right? Mm-hmm. On a I would assume more of the technology side of that of that product. Mm-hmm. What what have you taken from that experience that you can apply to that work day to day? Great question. <laughs> I think I want to reflect on that for a mini second here. <laughs> so right now I'm working an insurance tech. It's it's a fintech. We are an insurance brokerage called Zensurance and we work with business owners. I think my biggest biggest takeaway from that research which I can apply here is actually that cross cultural experience. So Toronto is a very diverse place. We have people from all over the world living here and there are business owners who are from who moved here as immigrants from South Asia, from East Asia, from Africa, from Europe, from US, all around the world. When I talk to them, I think the experience of having this cross cultural background gives me one relatability factor. I tend to find it easier to build trust sometimes cuz if they're talking about US I'm like yeah 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 I've lived there I know those things I know those foods instant connection I can build that sort of trust to actually go deeper in the questions if they're from South Asia I've spent my entire life there I mean talk about it and I sure. I you know have that context so that relatability really adds to the trust factor as a researcher which I really value and then in terms of um, understanding little social and cultural cues in responses which i have to then sort of like deconstruct when i'm trying to understand the insight in it so for example <laughs> this guy who came as a participant for one of the studies at zensurance it's so funny he had his certificates like literally put up at the back <laughs> and uh, kept saying again and again i'm an author of 15 books and i have talked here and there and whenever i'd ask him okay like how tell me more about the experience you had online with our services he would be like if i was you i would change this thing because you know being as a consultant for 15 years i really think putting a drop down there is of no use <laughs> to me this is a cultural side of things 
a cultural aspect of showing off your part of thing, your part of experience so that your input is considered valuable mm -hmm. and credible. Mm -hmm. And when I was taking insight from that interview, I was like, okay, breaking it down, this part of the response was him building that credibility. And then when he describes why is that part where I can actually find an insight and take back to my team and be like, guys, we need to put a drop down because the slider is having a problem on the mobile. Or we need to find some solution to solve this slider issue because the thumb on the mobile is the problem we are trying to solve here. So I think having that background of um, understanding different contextual clues with my cross-cultural research and experience, I think it makes it sort of manageable, I would say, or what's the best word? In a way, more easier to break it down and, yeah. and pick on those cultural cues. That's good. I'm glad you shared that. And you know, just for me, as something I do in the show is I kind of bring it back and try to summarize something. But I'm going to add my own personal takeaway to that. And I, mean, I think it might be helpful is that sort of just reminding yourself of trying to build that trust and rapport with anybody you're doing research with. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's not a thing if you're running a survey necessarily. It's not a thing if somebody's just filling out a feedback form. But it's very, very different if you're jumping on a call or if you're meeting mm -hmm. somebody in person and having a conversation, I know I've certainly fallen victim to it where I'm so focused on the thing I want to learn and the answer that I need to get in order to do my job better or you know, provide direction or recommendations from the research we do that you don't spend as much time building that trust. And the thing is, even if you get the answer, maybe you didn't earn enough trust with that person to really get deeper in what you could have learned. Uh -huh. And that's something really worth, I think, reminding all of, you know, ourselves about. Is that a fair summary? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I look at us UX researchers as almost like part therapists. <laughs> you know, when the therapist builds that trust that you want to actually share your real life story with them instead of just the version that you share everywhere else. That's where you want to be at to actually get valuable insights, especially when it comes to the financial sector or when it comes to business or more things where people don't want to share their their actual secrets or their actual desires or even like studies that include sexual behavior or they include more intimate behavior sure. or you know for women when it comes to their bodies and stuff all these kinds of research as a UX researcher you have to really build that trust because otherwise you're just going to get superficial insights and you know you've done your job great you'll find some insights but if you want to hit the nail you know at the right spot like you have to have that trust you know i, I see myself as a psychotherapist in the first 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> and then i yeah. switch like okay i'm a finder now <laughs> yeah i mean that's it's just such a big deal you know and like what you're sharing is a good reminder for me of that. And so I guess that's why I'm sharing it as sort of a summary. Maybe it's my own biased takeaway of what I'm sort of learning and summarizing based on what you've shared with us. But I, I think it's really, really worth bringing up because we don't talk about it all that often, right? I mean, we talk about, like you said, the methodologies, the execution, maybe even how we analyze data. And that's all great. But in this very qualitative person-to-person -person ethnographic type research, if you ask somebody a question, you'll get an answer to the question. Absolutely. The quality of that answer matters. I think how, how comfortable they feel with you, how much they trust you, both in terms of whether or not you actually give a shit about what they're <laughs> saying, right? That's number one. And yeah. uh, also too, like, do they trust you with the answers they're going to give you? Like, can they trust you to keep that confidential and safe and, and use that appropriately, right? Yeah, yeah. Little things. I mean, I'll use this example of our conversation in the start before we actually started recording this. You said, you know, we don't censor information. And for me, that that little moment was like, great. I can talk about 
things that I would not think about talking in a public space. So if I'm talking about women's bodies and periods and all those things, it's because I felt comfortable. I was like, wait a minute, I don't, great. I don't have to censor that, you know, and small thing, but that builds trust. That's how we build trust with this conversation. Yeah, 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 for sure. So I think that for all of us, new or seasoned and advanced practitioners is something to really kind of keep top of mind, especially now too. I mean, you think about like the social political climate we find ourselves in, for sure in the U.S., but I think around the world, particularly with some things developing in the social media space, just and in the general, like the emphasis on privacy and your data rights and things like that. Yeah. There's a lot that's been discussed about that. We're dealing with people's lives here when we do this work. And it's just really important that we be respectful of that and earn that trust, right? Yeah. Pay attention to that before we expect to get answers for our questions. Absolutely. And especially when you're talking about social media. So social media has really crossed boundaries. It's so global. It's so cross-cultural. It's You can't just decide one thing based on an understanding in UK and put it everywhere or in US and put it everywhere. It's this realization of how contextual this is while it's very global. And in that, if you actually want to find those real insights, you have to build that trust. As I was saying, like I stepped in and I felt like I could speak in English and I looked like, you know, a local in Malaysia, but they would still see me as an outsider. What can I do as a UX researcher to really build that trust? I'm on your side. You know, sometimes I see people taking UX research in a very superficial way, like, okay, A, B, C, done, done, done. I'm working in a tech company. I've done all my steps. But if you take this perspective to a bigger scale of social scale, where people are doing work in tech, but in things like sensitive issues like political stuff, rights, women rights. You know, recently we had such an outcry about colored people and it is so, so important. Like, and and if you're building a tech company in that space, man, you got to be sensitive about it and you got to be able to build that trust because otherwise, you know, why would someone share their vulnerable side and their problems and their challenges with you if, if, you know, if you're an outsider. And I think the most important part of that and that last bit that you just talked about is being genuine too. Because I think, you know, if you're just kind of going through the motions of where it feels like, oh, this person is trying to build trust with me, like that's not it. <laughs> right? yeah, that's yeah. not what you're going oh for. You're not checking a box. You got to. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's the thing, right? Is in doing research is that you, you have to actually care about what this person has to share, what they want to share. I think you have to start with the right intentions. And we've talked about that a bit on other episodes uh, yeah. in our show over various various guests but you know keeps coming up absolutely i think it's a it's a repeated theme authenticity and also it's a repeated theme in in today's world because social media and all these things continuously push us to present one side of us and maybe sometimes push things to a level where it's not not really authentic anymore or or we're just trying too hard to Mm -hmm. pretend to be authentic but that's not authentic and this idea of authenticity i as a ux researcher always am questioning in like what is authentic anyways okay i'll give you a context some parts of me were authentic when i was in one country then some parts of me were authentic when i was in another country then you know another setting and all of that is me but some people will look at me like oh why is she so like warm and loud and everything which is authentic in one side of the world, but in the other side, it's considered like, oh my God, like she's just trying so hard maybe, or she's trying to be somebody. Mm -hmm. On the other side, if you are like, 
passive and reserved and you go into countries where warmth and loud cultures are more existent and you try to be that person who's passive and they're like, what, what are they trying to present here? Like they're trying to show off that mm-hmm. they're too far away. These little these little nuances in culture, that's where I really find the most fascinating thing is, is that's where you build the idea of authenticity, the idea of cultural context, the idea of building trust, all the things that we talked about in these little little nuances. Yeah, and you know, through all of that, you brought up this experience in Malaysia a few times where, you know, maybe quote unquote looked the part, but you were speaking a different language and they could have seen you. Was there any particular thing you did to sort of build some of that trust and really start to connect with those people so that you could have these real conversations? For me, I think this is a great reminder of like so many of those moments. I think this happened to me and to us in general when we were building our team as researchers from like different countries. When we were building trust with participants in those countries, it was an, a repeated thing now that I'm looking back. And on my end, what I tried to do was finding some common spaces, not forcing it, but trying to discover through conversations, one by being Stepping forward and being like, hello, you know, I want to be here. My intention is that I don't want to be considered an outsider. I want to be let in. And chances are some good people will let you in because they see that positive intention. But the main thing I think was to find common grounds with the researchers that I was working with. Our common ground was we were mostly women who had traveled who had lived in different countries, who had faced challenges on our own. And so that whether we were like, we really were apart in our age groups, in our backgrounds, but that really connected us like that. Like it just built that formal, informal sort of understanding. Like I know you and you're not an other, you know, you're one of us. The same was true for for the Malaysia part too. After the session, when we started talking to everyone, like open conversations, I stepped in and I, I talked to people and they said, Oh my God. Yeah, that's true for us too. You face that in Pakistan? Yeah, this is same here. And you know, that, that builds that sort of common understanding. It takes me back to this, um, this point about strangers. In a recent conversation, one of my friends, we were saying, but who is a stranger anyways? You know, a stranger is a, is a person you can't relate to. Otherwise, a person you met and started dating and got in a relationship with in in a month becomes a person who is close to you. And Mm -hmm. then a person who's been living next to your house for years and years is still a stranger. Why? It's that moment of connectivity where where you become us instead of the other person who lives in the next door. And same is true for UX research and, and this experience of Malaysia, experience in UK, in Pakistan. That's such a fascinating, awesome point that you made where it's almost like a stranger is someone you decide is a stranger. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if we show up <laughs> as uh, we're a person and we're having a conversation, not I'm here to research you. Like that's different, you know, that's not... Yeah, that's not yeah, what's yeah, going yeah. on. And if it is, and that's the way you approach it, you're you're definitely gonna get a different result. And it also made me think of some experiences I've had too, where this is not every time, but I have certainly had the experiences where, you know, you talk with people and you say, Okay, you know, you explain what you're here to do, and maybe you build some initial trust and stuff, and you have the the interview or the session. And I've found that in some cases, that person, once you're like, Okay, yeah, I mean, that's all the questions we had and stuff like that. Anything else you want to chat about? And then all of a sudden, after the session ends, <laughs> when you get some of the best information, because then they feel like they can they can turn this other part of themselves off. They feel like 100%. they can be, I don't think that that's right, wrong, or indifferent, but it's just something to be mindful of. And it comes from trust. It comes from feeling comfortable. 
Absolutely. I'll share this one anecdote. So we had a maid in Pakistan, Lahore, and she would come every day to the office to do the cleaning. And this one day when we were working on this mobility project, I went to her and I said, where are you coming from? Like, how do you commute? She's like, oh, I, I live like two hours away, two hours commute away. And my brother, he was the one who actually insisted that I talk to her because he was like, I think we have a really good experience here, which is very anecdotal. And of course, she didn't know we were interviewing her or we were actually digging in for some information. So she opened up and said, you know what, this is pathetic. Our public buses are like this. And, you know, I have to change from on rickshaw. Rickshaw is a small three wheel ride from rickshaw to bus to rickshaw to walking. And, you know, it's I spent two hours coming one way and two hours going back ways. And I wonder why am I doing this for just, you know some money. And she was really, really digging deeper into problems in the bus, problems in the rickshaw. And she was complaining in a way, but she was so open and free to do that. But in contrast, when we were in World Cafes and we were talking, I noticed everyone could not open up like that because they were like, oh, you know what? We have to protect the image of our country. This is a cross-cultural research. And, you know, we don't want to show ourselves as like the stereotypical colonized version of these illiterate people, you know? That is like how you were saying after that conversation, the person opened up. That's the exact same difference of like this formal side and informal side of things. Very, very interesting for sure. Yeah, I think a lot of people ask me, I'm sure you get similar questions where maybe they're newer to the field or they're trying to break into U.S. research field. And, you know, how can I become a good researcher or a better researcher? I think it's these kind of things that really separate someone who, like you said, knows the theories, knows the practices can teach anybody how to structure or set up an interview and everybody can ask questions. It's a matter of getting this kind of experience and thinking about these kind of things. Who is this person I'm talking to? What might they be apprehensive about? What are the reasons, like you said, even culturally, they might not want to share this with me because of the way that they're, you know, concerned of how it might make them seem and things like that. I think Absolutely. it's this kind of stuff that makes really good researchers. This is the advanced level UX research that we need to start talking about because I've been questioning for a couple of years now. I'm like, I've read so many books, talked to people, and every time is the same thing. What methods? Even in job interviews, like applying for senior positions and they send you a questionnaire saying, what methods do you think you use? And just one-on-one questions. And now that we're talking about it, absolutely agree. These are the things that are the advanced level, which differentiate you from just anyone doing the job versus you loving that field and you going to an advanced level understanding of it, for sure. Awesome. You know, we're coming up towards the end of our time. I want to be respectful of that for you. As I typically do in every episode, I say, you know, if I if I got hit by a bus or I got hit, you know, hit on the head and forgot <laughs> everything we talked about and somebody were to say, okay, well, can you just summarize the conversation we had? How would you answer that? I'd say we talked about a few things, which were as researchers being mindful of the cultural complexity being mindful of how theory and practice can be different when we talk about collaboration, when we talk about human interactions, when we talk about how things happen in real participatory methods and co-design and all those brilliant words and ideologies when they happen in real, really understanding and giving space to the, to the actual complexity. I say this idea of building trust, building, not forcefully building it, but finding that one connection, which actually can be a common connection to make someone feel like this person talking to me is on my side and not just, you know, looking at me as like a lab rat or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think just to wrap it up, uh, UX researchers tend to look at it in a philosophical way sometimes. And I, I think being UX researchers is one side of that. 
I would say to wrap our conversation up as like one insight is that we need to remember we are working with humans and even if we're working in tech, we're working in VR, AI, whatever, we have to keep that human side of things alive in some ways to be able to find more. We are after all discoverers and researchers are like, you know, those uh, those people looking in for new things. So yeah, that's how I'll probably wrap it up. Nice. As you summarize that, there were a couple of things that reminded me if I could add my takeaways to some things you were saying, especially with building trust. It sounds to me like we need to meet the other person on their side, not halfway. We need to, mm. we need to meet them where they are because, you know, it's not, this is not a mutual thing. We're there to learn from them and, and it should be on their terms. That's, I think that that's really important. Kind of keep that mindset of uh, like a servant mindset. That we're, Agreed. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I think it's just really, really useful. Well, this has been awesome. I'm certain we could discuss this even longer, but unfortunately we are right out of time. But I'm curious, is there anything that you want to share with folks listening that maybe we didn't talk about already? One thing that I will just love to share is um, if anyone's interested in talking about this further or knowing more about the work that I do or the work that I'm hoping to do, please do reach out. I am planning to launch a new business idea in the travel and mobility space. It's called Wanderlight. Hoping that I can, once the traveling resumes, that is, hoping to launch that. And people interested, please do reach out. I won't reveal what it is <laughs> just yet. Please do check out the book that I've co-authored. It's an incredible, incredible book. It brings together researchers from around the world doing projects in so many different spaces on gender, on how cities look like and how experiences of the cities can be designed and developed to incorporate equality and equity and fairness. Yeah, that's uh, that's all what I'll say. Okay, awesome. And we can make sure to include some links in the show notes to some of that stuff. So when you're listening, go ahead over to page where we've got the episode with Komal and go ahead and check those things out. Otherwise, I just want to thank you again for taking the time. Really, really awesome. Very interesting conversation and background and life experience you shared with us. It was a pleasure, Zach. Honestly, this was such a such a reflective conversation. Thank you nice. so much. Nice. Likewise. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the research and insights tool that helps you analyze, search, and share all your research in one place so you can go from data to insights to action faster and easier. Check out Aurelius for yourself with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S lab.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you would give us a review on iTunes to let others know what you think. You can catch all new episodes of the Aurelius podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, and more. Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for email updates on our website.